welcome to the BBXX podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, here to bring you conversations that challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to think and talk about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. In the first episode of our two-part interview with Dr. Emily Nagoski, she explains how male and female anatomy is actually made up of the exact same parts. She helps us understand that we're all normal, and she teaches us how we can learn to tune into or tune out our internal voice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Yeah. I'd love to know how it is that you came to, through your own personal experiences, kind of where you identify with your own work and how through those experiences it's brought you to where you are today. Yeah, I have a very nonlinear sort of professional trajectory. I've never had that clear sense of like, I know for sure what I want to do. This is these are the steps I have to take to get there. Here's how I'm going to go. Um, I have just gone. It's like I've taken one step. That seemed like a good idea. And uh, then like a spotlight appeared ahead of me showing what the next step should be. So I took that one step with no idea what direction I was heading or what the ultimate destination was. So I started uh, in undergrad, actually, at the University of Delaware. I was a big old nerd. Like, <laughs> I knew I was going to be going to grad school for something. I had no idea what, but for something. Uh, so I thought, okay, I need some volunteer work on my resume to make me look like a good grad school candidate. Mm-hmm. And a uh, guy on my floor who was pre-med said, hey, I know, come and be peer health educator with me. Uh, and I was like, I like health. Why not? So I did. I applied and I got accepted and started getting trained to go into residence halls to talk about condoms, contraception and consent uh, and then sleep and stress and all these other health issues, nutrition, uh, and later to do uh, sexual assault crisis responding and sexual assault prevention education. And while I was doing that, I was earning a degree in uh, psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy, which I really loved and I genuinely do use it. But the intellectual academic stuff I was doing just didn't make me like who I am as a person in a way the volunteer work I was doing as a peer educator did. So that's the path I chose. Instead of just what was intellectually fulfilling, I chose what made me feel whole as a human, uh, which took me to Indiana University, uh, where I did a clinical and I was got a master's degree in counseling psychology with a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute. I got trained as a sex therapist, realized midway through that program that I am not by temperament a therapist. Like I'm not good at like sitting still with people very slowly and like nodding and saying, how does that make you feel? Um, I'm an educator by temperament. Uh, and I'm also a, a woman who likes to be in charge of things, which means PhD. So I went back to school. I got a PhD in health behavior. It's basically public health, again, with a concentration in human sexuality. And so there I was with a PhD in human sexuality. Uh, A couple years later, I started at Smith College. I was the director of wellness education, and I taught a class called Women's Sexuality. Uh, And I was was at Smith for eight years altogether. Uh, And when I was teaching this class, uh, I ended the semester, my very first semester teaching, by asking my students the question, Uh, just tell me one important thing you learned. 
out of all the science that I squeezed into this 100 level class, what was most important? And I thought they were going to say like the evolutionary biology or attachment theory or something like that. And instead, more than half of my students, I had 187 students in this class, more than half of them wrote something like, I learned I'm normal. I learned I'm not broken. Just because I'm different from other women doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. Um, And I don't know if you've ever graded final exams, but this is not what it's usually like. I was sitting in my office with tears in my eyes, grading final exams, and I knew that something important had happened and I wanted to do it again. And I wanted to make it accessible to more than just the students at this one school. So that's the day I decided to write Come As You Are. Five years later, there it was. I had this book um, and I have been trying traveling around, talking about the science of women's sexual well-being ever since. Amazing. Glad that right off the bat, you chose what makes you happy. And to focus on that, I think a lot of people spend their life and end up coming back to that if at any point. Um, many and you know, it's only later. recently that I've discovered what the personal strength is that allowed me to do that. I have always had a very loud internal uh, voice telling me this feels right, this doesn't feel right. And I don't always listen to it, but it is always very loud. So when I do hear it, when I'm given sufficient time to stop dismissing it, uh, I can always recognize what it's saying. Uh, And every time I follow what it tells me to do, it's the right thing. The more women I talk to, the more I discover that voice isn't as loud and obnoxious for everybody as it is for me. It's more subtle. It's more quiet. It's more polite. um, And it requires more focused attention in order for it to really emerge and say what it has to say. Right. I, I love that. And how, what kind of advice would you give to women who have that kind of more quiet, dismissive voice that they how to kind of let that out? Or I, first of all, identify it, recognize it, um, that it could be a good thing um, and to kind of live through that more. Yeah, for me, there's three things that I found are really valuable. One is, first of all, recognizing that if you got identified as a girl on the day you were born, you were trained from that day to believe other people's opinions about your body and your internal experience more than you believe what your body itself is trying to communicate to you. Um, so if you have trouble hearing your inner voice, your inner wisdom, if you uh, struggle to believe it and trust it, that's normal because that's what you got taught to do. So you're just doing what your entire life history has said is the right way to do it. And you can begin to undo that learning and reconnect with your internal voice through a practice of mindfulness. Of course, it comes back Mm -hmm. to learning to quiet the noise outside you and quiet the noise inside you. Uh, And the third essential practice is a kind of self-compassion that's a little more complex, actually, than uh, how we usually think about it. I love simple practices like just folding your hands over your heart and telling yourself things like, I am enough, or I am safe, or may I know peace. That is a beautiful, lovely, and effective, in fact, evidence-based practice to help reduce stress and to improve well-being. Um, But I find that in order to gain access to your very quiet, shy, polite internal voice, it takes slightly uglier kind of intervention. Um, In the second book, actually, the one I wrote after Come As You Are, it's called Burnout. The last chapter is called The Mad Woman in the Attic. And the mad woman is that mean critical lady in your head who tells you what a terrible person you are and what a failure you are and how dumb and ugly and unlovable you are, um, which 
uh, I feel comfortable saying because pretty much, again, if you got identified as a girl on the day you were born, you've spent your entire life trying to be what everybody told you to be instead of who you actually are. And there is this unbridgeable gap between the actual you, you and expected you, who the world expects you to be. And the mad woman, her job is to yell at you until you work hard enough to conform to that culturally constructed, aspirational, ideal self. Like she's trying to help you. She's trying to keep you safe. She's trying to make sure you meet other people's expectations. And she's doing it in a way that's pretty destructive and cruel. But our job is to turn toward her with kindness and compassion. We don't silence her. We don't ignore her. We don't try to replace what she's saying with affirmations. Because, you know, if you're like really mad at somebody and you're mad in a panicked way because you're pretty sure the thing they're doing is putting them at risk and you love them and you want to keep them safe and they're ignoring you saying, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I don't believe you. Everything is fine. Like, would that, would that help the situation? Or... Would that just make you crazier and escalate and make you more frustrated and more furious? Mm -hmm. Whereas if they turn toward you and say, I can tell you're worried. Tell me what's bothering you. That's when you can say, here's what's bothering me and feel listened to and understood. So that's what you do. You turn toward your inner madwoman with kindness and compassion. I actually did this. Uh, I, oh, man. So there was a conference that I had agreed to attend. Uh, it was on my calendar for Sunday. And on Saturday, I got a text saying, hi, Emily, are you uh, upstairs? We're ready to get started. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I did what I could to mitigate. I, like I just put it on the wrong day in my calendar. I was still in my pajamas half an hour away. My car was under a foot of snow. I was not going to get to the conference. Um, so I did what I could to mitigate the actual situation itself. And then, of course, my mad woman is like full, like the whip is out and she's throwing balls of lava at me. Just beating the crap out of me, like what a bad, terrible person I am because I have made this mistake. Uh, so I took my own advice. I turned toward her. In my imagination, my mad woman looks like Teka, the lava monster from Moana. Um, so she's throwing these lava balls at me, and I turn toward her like Moana, saying, Let her come to me. And the ocean parts, and Teka comes up to me and starts telling me how angry she is that I made this mistake and then she says how afraid she is for me that when I make these kinds of mistakes people are going to stop wanting to know me and basically I'm going to die alone and when she got through her fear then she told me how exhausted she was from having to carry all this rage and all of this fear for me all the time to be so vigilant all the time constantly worrying that even the smallest mistake was going to result in people uh, never wanting to talk to me again. And because I had turned to her with kindness and compassion, because I was listening with love and appreciation for all the hard work she was doing for me, even though she was doing it in a way that was counterproductive and hurtful, I could see value in her motivation. And I could thank her for what her intention was and grant her permission to like take a break go rest, take care of yourself because I'm an adult now and I can take care of the situation and it really is going to be okay because the people in my life aren't going to abandon me just because I made a mistake. 
So that was that was my three things. The third one was turning toward your inner critic with kindness and compassion, building a positive relationship. She's not going anywhere. So you might as well be friends as much as you can Mm -hmm. with a toxic person. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mindfulness practice, which is simply learning how to tune out the noise in the outside world and focus on your internal experience in a quiet way. Uh, And the first one was recognizing that if you struggle to hear your inner voice, that's because you've been taught to ignore it. Um, it's a form of gaslighting, really, to say, no, no, you think your internal experience is one thing, but I'm here to tell you that it's something else. Don't believe what your gut is telling you. Don't believe what your own personal sense of right and wrong is saying. You believe me. You believe what I said. It's gaslighting. Those are my tips. Right. And I, I, I loved how kind of the, the mad woman, her anger you specifically mentioned came from a place of fear. Yeah. And when I ask women to describe their mad woman over and over the way they describe her is as this unpleasant character who also has this really profound vulnerability and sadness underlying that unpleasantness. Like, you know, the angry emo girl sitting in the back of class slouched in high school. And when anything goes wrong, she just goes, well, I told you so. But she's really lonely sitting back there. She's unpleasant. Right, man. Comes, yeah. And then it comes from that place of, so she's actually quite concerned for you and she wants the best for you, but she's just going about it in such an unhealthy and toxic way. So kind of to counteract that and her insecurities is just having your own securities and knowing your own worth to balance out her fear. Yeah. And it helps to heal her because her insecurity comes from the original wound of the world treating you as though you're supposed to be someone other than who you truly are. Which is the Moana song, I have crossed the horizon to find you. Imagine if you turn toward that mean critical voice in your head and you say, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but that does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And you return the heart. What happened? I'm spoiling Moana. Anybody who you hasn't seen Moana, to, you, like, <laughs> yeah, you need to become the face of Moana. Because I, this movie is a parable for like womanhood, and I think everyone should watch it. I know it's Disney and it's got problems, and also like Teka, the lava monster, is actually Tefiti. The moral of the story is our enemies are made when their hearts are stolen. And we yeah, can unmake totally. our enemies when we return their hearts. We see what's beneath the surface. We turn toward them with kindness and compassion. When Moana says, let her come to me, he, she restores the heart. And Teka, the lava monster, becomes, spoiler, Tefiti, the goddess of life. When we can love that mean lady inside our own head, it turns out she's actually a source of abundance and inspiration and creativity and motivation and joy and pleasure right and i one have new plans for tonight which i've seen (laughs) moana um but it sounds amazing and kind of exactly what you said it reminds me of that saying that you can't ever truly hate somebody if you haven't loved them first and that kind of their anger or or fear coming from having lost their heart and my sister sent me a quote just the other week that like the only basically says the only reason people hurt other people is because they're feeling hurt themselves and so exactly as you're saying you don't have to hurt her back um that's not the solution it's it's turning towards her yeah given that hurting people is not an excuse 
or having been hurt yourself is not a reason or a justification for hurting someone else, but it's always coming from a place of pain and suffering. And we can, if we choose to, create space for recognizing the hurt that has been done to someone who is hurting us. Amazing. Um, To dive into your book a bit more, um, I must say I'm kind of obsessed with the first chapter about anatomy. Yeah. And I just love it. So for anybody listening who hasn't read it yet, which you probably soon will, um, it basically talks about the fact that male and female anatomy is the exact same down to it coming from the same kind of cells and skin types and literally just being kind of displayed in a different way, but that each part in one sex has its equivalent in the other down to there's some seam that you mentioned like a line that runs down the scrotum I believe yeah the uh scrotal raphe is the technical term and I just feel as though it kind of discounts so many things by putting everything on this level playing field it just makes people realize that you have to discount so many stereotypes due to you know anatomy or uh evolution which obviously plays a part in certain things but it just kind of reminds you that we need to view things from this level playing field and not with all the socialization uh that kind of filters our perspective and i just found it so fascinating so i'd love you to just kind of speak a bit to that oh yeah you have nailed it that's exactly what i was going for in that chapter i obviously wanted to do a little bit of anatomy education like here is where the clitoris is once and for all here is where the vagina is once and for all um but more than that i wanted people to see that all of our bodies are made of all the same parts just organized in a different way like that scrotal raphe you mentioned it's this sort of seam going down the center of a scrotum the scrotum being the part on somebody who you know on the day they're born all the adults go it's a boy right the scrotum is a sort of like stretchy skin on the outside where hair will grow later and on the body parts of babies who make the adults go, it's a girl. There's also some stretchy skin where hair's gonna grow later. And on girl assigned bodies, that's the vulva or the external labia, the uh, labia majora. And when you look at a scrotum, you see that seam going down the middle. That's actually where that person's uh, body would have developed into two separate labia if things had been a little different in the chromosomes or in the hormonal environment in the womb. It's the same tissue. In the womb, it's actually called labioscrotal tissue. It's all the same stuff. It's just organized in a slightly different way. The penis, of course, is the equivalent of the clitoris. And, you know, like the head of the penis isn't all there is to a penis. Duh. And the head of the clitoris, which is the only external part of a clitoris, is not all there is to a clitoris. There's this vast internal structure to a clitoris of tissue that swells up at arousal and uh, is part of the process of lubrication. And when we recognize that all those parts are there, we see that the clitoris is not just this little nub. The size of it might make us want to dismiss it, but it's actually... This really important structure in the same way the penis is a really important structure for a person who has a penis and loves their penis. Um, mm-hmm. And then my favorite example, which is the one that really is like, okay, there's a difference between what our bodies are and what our culture 
sort of lays over like what the meaning imposed on our culture on our genitals is which is uh the hymen this is a thing that happened on the very first day that I was teaching at Smith. It was my anatomy lecture because I start with anatomy. And a student raised her hand and said, Emily, can you tell me the evolutionary origin of the hymen? Mm-hmm. And I, I had been a sex educator for 15 years by then. And I had never even wondered what the evolutionary origin of the hymen was. So I was like, I will get back to you. And I did a bunch of research over the next week. And uh, it turned out there was no evolutionary function of a hymen uh we have hymens for the same reason that the it's a boy babies among humans have nipples which is that nipples are very important for all mammal species they're so important that evolution has made sure the hardware is installed from the very beginning before differentiation between male and female happens nipple hardware is just there because that's how important nipples are for our survival as a species that nurses but so nipples are this sort of like extra residual leftover thing from this homology the technical term is homologous homology means having the same origins uh so they're just left over they also called spandrels they have no particular uh function that they were selected to do it's just there and it might do some stuff since it's there and the hymen is just a homologue it's this leftover residual thing on the it's a girl set of genitals left over from the sort of cascade of organizational events that happened to create a vulva uh, because that tissue was necessary in the cascade of events that create a penis and scrotum. Um, it's the, the homologue is the equivalent of the viral montanum, which don't remember that. It doesn't matter. It's the curve of tissue between the prostate and the urethra, which it's primary thing that happens is that it is that curve. And sometimes it gets infected. It's the only time you'll ever hear about it. Um, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't serve any function. Uh, it's just a, an extra fold of tissue. It's like a cuticle. It's just there. And from there, I did all this research on the hymen, and it turned out everything my culture taught me about the hymen is a total lie. Like, when you have intercourse, your hymen does not break. And when you think about it, of course it doesn't. Is there any body part that if it tears, it just stays torn? Like, if you tear your lip when you fall and hit it against something, what happens to your lip? It heals, Right. So does your hymen. There's actually no relationship between the shape and size of your hymen and whether or not your vagina has been penetrated. None. Right? So this is the biological reality of the hymen is it's just sort of like this random extra fold of skin that's just there and it stretches with intercourse and if it does tear it breaks but uh, it heals just like all the rest of our tissue. But culturally because, you know, patriarchy, ugh. Uh, a culture that made women's bodies property saw this fold of tissue over the mouth of the vagina, which is the reproductive tract of that body. And said, like my husband jokingly calls it a freshness seal, that it's this like marker of purity <laughs> and like it's like a gated like, oh, so this is how we know this one's fresh. This is how we know this one's pure, because you want to make sure that your property is undamaged or unsullied. And if this is all just a little bit gross, yeah, it feels a little like patriarchy. Yeah, it is. So which story do you like better? The one that's just like your hymen is just a thing that's there because biology uh, or 
your hymen is a bile is a is a marker of your purity and your worth. I can tell you which one <laughs> supported by the evidence. It's the biology. Like there's no relationship between whether or not you're there are people who've given birth whose hymens are intact. It is not a marker of whether or not you have ever had any sort of vaginal penetration. So I mean, if you like the cultural story, okay, but it's not supported by the evidence. Right. And then, wow, and having given birth and still having that intact is just kind of irrefutable evidence. But then there are also people, as you mentioned, that are born without it or born with kind of one that... So, what does all of this say? It's hard to even try and process the fact that religions and and lives have been built around Mm -hmm. such a powerful myth that stands on air yeah stands on lives have literally somebody has been born without this they literally could be punished for the rest of them their lives for something that yeah they can be killed for it yeah Yeah. because somebody does a oh god virginity test and sees that that person does not have a hymen and they think that it means something other than like this is just one of those people who has a vulva but doesn't have a hymen and hymens come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes that have no relationship to that person's sexual behavior. I want to ask how we how, how how we kind of help I guess by bringing light to it is really the only thing you can do to try and create change in that space and making people realize that. For me, knowledge is for sure the first step. Once you know, then you can make choices about your own personal sexuality, like your relationship with your body. You can make choices about the way you talk with your friends and loved one and your kids about Mm -hmm. their bodies and how you feel about them and what the standards are. And you can look at the larger culture and ask yourself if there's larger cultural change that you could see creating in order to change the way our culture treats people based on the shape and size of their body parts. Right. And that's kind of what we like to say is we're working to change the the culture and the conversation surrounding a lot of these themes. Exactly. Bodies and sex, but intimacy and relationships as a whole. Another thing that you mention in the book, a line I love that kind of paints such a clear portrait that immediately kind of counteracts everything we've we've learned and i love when that happens um is how you say that trying to understand sex by looking at behavior is like trying to understand love by looking at a couple's wedding portrait yes (laughs) so i guess if you could just say something a little quick something about that but it's 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 so self-explanatory at the same time that I think a lot of people will just say, wow, because what you look at a wedding portrait, these photos say nothing except for kind of taking the top 0.1% of life, uh, life's beauty and joy and capturing it into this still frame that obviously cannot be a representation of the rest of the relationship, nor would it be fair in the sense that most people's relationships only start from there and evolve so much afterwards and become something even stronger and even more beautiful and perhaps more joyous. Perhaps, you know, they don't look, you know, aren't the same size dress as they were in the photo. But as I actually just read an article about last week, um, there's science behind gaining weight actually is like positively correlated with your happiness. So there's 
also, you know, just so much to be said behind that photo. Yeah, it's a snapshot, a picture. That's what behavior is. If we measure behavior, if we explore behavior, it's this really superficial, very surface level glance at what's happening. We can tell ourselves a story about what we think the motivations are behind those behaviors. Like there's a way we can tell ourselves a story about a couple that we see in a wedding portrait, but we don't know. We're just making up a story based on what we already know about those kinds of images or those kinds of behaviors. Uh, And the way to actually know is to dive much deeper and get much richer information about life histories and about the ways people vary from each other and about all the different courses that a life can take. And yeah, actually, body size is one of those things where there's such enormous variability that behavior doesn't even begin to capture everybody's situation. Um, There's a whole chapter in, so Come As You Are has a half a chapter about body image and its impact on sexuality. That's in chapter five, I think. Um, And then, oh gosh, it's also in chapter five in Burnout in the second book. The whole chapter is about body shape and size. It's called the Bikini Industrial Complex, about this enormous profit machine that, uh, only makes money when we hate our bodies and are convinced that we need to change them in some way, including by making us believe that the healthiest thing for us to be is as thin as we are capable of becoming. And uh, increasingly, the research is like, yeah, no, that's just not right. It can be healthier to be 70 pounds over your medically defined ideal weight than it is to be just five pounds under it. Um, and basically the healthiest on average weight to be is somewhere in the sort of what technically by this, the CDC and the World Health Organization would call overweight. Those are the people who live the longest, have the fewest health complications, and are most likely to survive um, a dangerous illness, which is like you don't hear that story very often. Why? Because the bikini industrial complex is not interested in you hearing that story. They are not interested in you loving your body and enjoying living in the world. They're interested in you hating yourself and constantly feeling like you need to change your body so that you can conform with the culturally constructed aspirational beauty ideal, which when you live in the West, that's the thin ideal. Would like to say that that beauty industry is a half of a trillion dollar yeah. industry that I think... <laughs> I think last night, actually, I heard somebody say something similar that was about how much money is made off of people making themselves feel terrible about yeah. themselves. That's interesting about kind of the, the health the health things as well. I hadn't heard that. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. (laughs) 